So glad I could be here again with you guys this week. Just so you know, uh, we haven't like staged an internal coup against Pastor Chuck. Uh, I was originally slated about once every six weeks um, to preach because, you know, we like to give Pastor Chuck a rest. And then last week, uh, he he got sick, um, so he asked me to take over. So that's why I'm doing it two weeks in a row. Uh, He'll be back next week. I'm really excited, fresh off my ordination, that I get to speak twice. It's great. Great warm-up for being a pastor. Uh, when I worked in campus ministry, I would always think to myself, uh, I don't want anyone ever to call me Pastor Stephen. And then Abby did it twice already this morning. Um, so I still kind of feel that way, but, you know, I'm getting used to it a little bit. So anyway, we've been going through the Gospel of John for over a year now, and we're kind of getting towards the end now. It's, it's like moving towards a climax. Uh, last week, we started a new section um, that focuses on the period um, that's often called the, the passion of Jesus. Uh, it goes from the upper room, like after the, after the Passover supper, all the way until his crucifixion and burial. Um, and there's a series of events that happen, and we're going to go through them kind of one by one. Uh, last week, we covered Jesus' arrest. And if you were here with us last week, you remember that, that there was this moment during his arrest in which... Um, for uh, he, he kind of unveiled his divine power to the people that were arresting him, and they like fell back to the ground and were stunned. Um, and then Peter, uh, his apostle, like pulled out his sword and like attacked one of the guys and like chopped off his ear. And you gotta you gotta think that you know Peter maybe wasn't the greatest swordsman in the world. I, I don't think he was trying to like cut off the guy's ear. He was probably aiming at his head. Uh, it missed pretty badly. Uh, so that, that's what we talked about last week. I don't know if you remember our, our text from this week. I, I know like we read it during the worship service, but sometimes like so much time passes in between when we read it and when I talk about it. Uh, I feel like I should maybe quiz you if you remember what it is. You guys remember what happened in it? All right, this, this is, uh, I'll tell you what it is. This is um, a very famous uh, sequence. It happens in all four of the Gospels. Uh, and in it, Peter is tempted. It, it pretty much happens in the same way in all four Gospels. Um, so uh, this is what happens. Uh, Peter and John are following Jesus, who's just been arrested. They follow him from a distance. Um, now, it just says Peter and the other disciple. Uh, but a, a little rule of thumb when you're reading the Gospel of John, if it ever says, like, the other disciple or the beloved disciple, uh, that was kind of John's way of talking about himself for some reason. He didn't want to. Write his own name, I guess. So he just called himself the other disciple or the beloved disciple. So Peter and John are following Jesus from a distance. They go, uh, Jesus goes in the courtyard. He's arrested and taken to the courtyard of the high priest. And John, who apparently has some sort of connections with the high priest, he follows Jesus in. Um, but Peter, who doesn't have these connections, is left outside, outside the gate, looking in. So John, like, notices that Peter hasn't come in. So he has mercy on him, goes back, uh, talks to the guard. And then Peter and John go into the courtyard. And we, don't, we lose track of what happens to John at this point, and we focus in on Peter. And Peter, uh, somebody has lit a charcoal fire. So get that image in your head of a charcoal fire. It's not like a you know, bright, blazing wood fire. It's like a glow, the glowing embers of, a, of, a, of a, a faintly glowing charcoal fire. And it's cold out, and so all the people are kind of huddled around it. And Peter goes up to, to warm himself by the fire, and a servant girl comes up to him and says, uh, aren't you one of the disciples of Jesus? And uh, Peter replies, I am not. Now, if, if this were a film, at that moment, we'd kind of like close in, get a close-up on, on Peter's anguished face as he's just denied Jesus, and then there would be a cut. And we'll go straight to uh, the interior of the high priest's um, house, 
into a room that was brightly lit, full of uh, torches, and Jesus is surrounded by a mob of people that are uh, angrily looking at him and they're questioning him. Um, and Jesus replies uh, kind of boldly out in the open. He says, I, everything that I've done, I've done openly. I've sat in the synagogue courts and preached before all the people. Uh, you, don't need to, you didn't need to bring me in to question me if you wanted to know what, I, what, I, what I've been teaching. I've been teaching it openly. There's nothing secret about what I've been doing. Uh, and uh, you can kind of get one of the recurring like, images that's present in the Gospel of John is light. Jesus is called the, the light of the world. Uh, the, the setting for the whole book, it says that the light uh, came into the world and the darkness was opposed to it but has not overcome it. Uh, so Jesus is like shining brightly in, in this, uh, in the, uh, when he's being questioned by the high priest, saying exactly who he is, openly displaying um, exactly what he's taught. And then it cuts back and we're back around this faintly glowing embers of a fire where Peter, Peter's huddled around. And two more times people ask him, aren't you one of his disciples? Aren't you a follower of this man? And two more times, three total, he denies that he knows Jesus. Uh, the last denial is a little interesting because um, it's the only one that I, you know, I feel a little sympathy for, for Peter in that moment because uh, <clears throat> the guy that, in the text, it actually says that the guy, the third guy that, that asked him is a cousin of Malchus. So it was like a relative of Malchus, the guy whose ear he cut off. So you can imagine he's like, wait a second. <laughs> Did you just cut my cousin's ear off? <laughs> Uh, so that one's a little more understandable, but you know, the first, you know, the first couple are, you know, I mean, there's not really any excuse for what, what Peter does here. He just denies his savior. Uh, now these, these texts, um, they, they fit into, or this text fits into a, a, a biblical theme that recurs throughout the entirety of the scriptures. They're getting to the end in which the heroes of the text, the human, uh, characters, uh, that act in, in the life of, you know, in the Bible, are highlighted that they have failures, that they have clay feet. So if you go through uh, all the individuals in the scriptures from, you know, Abraham, whose faith fails him, you know, he, he lets his, he exposes his wife to danger, and then he fails to believe in the promises of God. Uh, Isaac does the same thing. Jacob is like this liar, deceiver, uh, David is an, you know, an adulterer and actually has the husband of the man who he's committing adultery with his wife, like has him killed. I mean, it, like it does not shy away from portraying the negative characteristics of the people in the Bible. Um, yeah, it doesn't shy away from uh, portraying the negative characteristics of the people in the Bible. Uh, and so in, in the same way, we have one of the central figures in the New Testament, Peter. Now, uh, keep in mind that like, Peter, like, knows John. Like, John's one of his buddies, right? And here's John, like, writing this story. You think, like, Peter would be like, could you, you know, maybe leave out the part where, you know, I essentially denied my Savior at the, the hour of his most need? Uh, but in every single one of the Gospels, deliberately in it, almost certainly with the approval of Peter, is this story in which uh, his, his weaknesses are exposed. Now, let's get a, a, a quick sense of Peter. By the way, I, I'm aware we talk about the denial of Peter. This is not like a, you know, like a deep cut from the scriptures. Like, let me tell you guys this story. You've probably never heard it before. Um, I know that uh, if you, uh, unless you're brand new to Christianity, unless you're uh, very recently joined the church, um, you probably grew up hearing this story. 
You've probably read it. You've probably maybe even heard other sermons on it, maybe multiple sermons on it. Um, and so I, I think that temp- my temptation is knowing that, that like I, I'm going to try and find this morning like some new, I got a new angle on it, you know. I went deep into the text. I found something new that you guys have never heard before. I'm not going to say that. I, I actually, uh, I'm going to try and preach it exactly as it is in the text. And I want you guys to hear it exactly as it is in here, okay? We, we are coming together under God's word to hear a familiar passage. But because, the, because of the character and nature of scripture, which is that the Holy Spirit is continuously speaking it. Every time we hear about it, Every time we preach it, every time we read it, it is spoken anew by God. Therefore, it is going to be spoken anew to us this morning. Though it is familiar, we hear it again. The Spirit has the power to transform us anew, even in this familiar text. All right, so let me tell you a little bit about Peter. Peter is the central disciple of the 12 disciples the one that is most prominent. Whenever uh, the disciples want to say something to Jesus, they usually use Peter as their spokesman. So we, and, and oftentimes when Jesus questions his disciple, the one who answers on their behalf is Peter. Uh, a great example of this is um, uh, when Jesus asked his disciples, who am I? Who am I? And, you know, some, they say, well, some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist. And then uh, Jesus says, how about you? But who do you say I am? <clears throat> And who answers? It's Peter. Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Peter, for this was not revealed to you by men, but it was revealed by God. That's Peter. Confesses Christ. Now, of course, literally minutes later, after calling him blessed, Jesus calls him Satan. Uh, like, go, go read that text if you want. Like, it's, it's literally like a few minutes later, <laughs> He says, get behind me, Satan, to Peter. So Peter's a guy, he's got the highs and he's got the lows. All right? That, that's Peter's kind of character. Uh, yeah, that's Peter's character. So later on, after Jesus um, is risen from the dead, after Jesus uh, ascends into heaven, when the church is going out, Peter is the central apostle as well. He's the leader of the church, early church in Jerusalem. At the day of Pentecost, when it's time to preach, it's Peter that preaches. Um, uh, according to church tradition, Peter ends up going to Rome and uh, leading the church in Rome, which was the most important city of its day. Uh, so that's a little bit about Peter. Now, in order to understand uh, somewhat of the context of this specific passage, I want to highlight uh, a few different events. So we're going to zoom in on a couple events from Peter's life. The first one um, is from Matthew 10. Now, I, I picked these three events because they will they will specifically to help us understand what is going on with Peter in this story, okay? So they're, they're very relevant. It's not just three random stories from Peter's life. Matthew 10, Jesus has just picked his 12 disciples. So of all the men that have followed him, he's picked 12 out, including Peter. Um, he's been going to all the towns in Galilee and Judea and announcing that the kingdom has come. And he's starting to realize, like, I'm not going to get through all these towns and villages. It's going to take me too long. And so he calls his 12 disciples together. He pairs them up into, into twos. And then he commissions them to go out and take his message. So at at a stroke, he's multiplied his ministry by six. Uh, And these these 12 disciples that he picks, uh, one of them is Peter, of course. And then when he sends them out, he gives them a series of instructions. Now, most of the instructions have to do with like, you know, don't take any money with you. Uh, If they reject you, brush the dust off your feet. 
et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so most of them are kind of practical suggestions. But then when he gets to the end, he gives them a few um, exhortations. And he says, do not be afraid of men. So if you go into these villages and they threaten you, or they reject you, or they show opposition to you, do not be afraid. Proclaim publicly what I've told you. Scream it from the rooftops. He says, do not be afraid of the one who has the power to destroy the body but cannot touch the soul. Rather, fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Don't fear men. Fear God. And then he says, and this is the key, key point from this section. He says, if anyone acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But if anyone denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. Now, this is Jesus. Peter heard this. I don't think, he, I don't think Peter forgot this. So in, in our text, as he's going into this courtyard, he is aware of the command that has been delivered to him by Jesus. The threat. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. Second story. Matthew 14, 28-33, one of the most well-known and well-loved stories. Uh, Jesus goes up on a mountainside to pray, and he sends his disciples. He says, go on ahead of me, get into the boat, and cross over on, on the lake. The disciples are out on the lake in the boat. The storm comes up. They get really afraid. They get, you know, they get scared. And suddenly they look out across the water. And who do they see? They see Jesus walking out to them. Jesus is walking on the water. You guys know that story, right? Jesus is walking on the water. And uh, what is the response of Peter in this text? It says that Peter jumps out of the boat. He jumps out of the boat and walks out on the water towards Jesus. Now, for a second, he kind of wavers in his belief, and he starts to sink. And then Jesus reaches out his hand, grabs him, and pulls him out. And Peter, Peter, and, Je- or Peter and Jesus yeah, walk together back to the boat and climb back into the boat. Imagine that. This is Peter and a boat on a stormy lake, and he just jumps out into the water. And he does it because he has faith. That Jesus, who he sees walking, will, will, will keep him safe. Okay, so from this story we learn that Peter has had experience of trusting in Jesus and experiencing the joy of the fruits of that faith. Third story. This is from after Jesus' uh, resurrection and ascension. Uh, ten days go by and then the Holy Spirit uh, comes down upon the mass of believers, and they speak in tongues, and they stand up in front of everyone, and Peter preaches, and it says that thousands come to know Christ that day. So the church is born. Peter is at the center of it. And then in Acts 3 and 4, a, a, a short while after that happens, uh, it says Peter and John were walking up to the temple courts to pray. So Peter and John walking up to the temple courts to pray. As they're walking up to pray, they passed by a gate. Now, what was unique about this gate was that sitting by this gate, there was a man, uh, an invalid, a man who had been unable to walk for years and years and years. And this man was well known because that was his begging spot. As people went into the temple courts, this man for, uh, I think, over 30 years had sat there begging. Day after day after day. As people walked in, he would say, you know, give me money. 
Peter and John walk by him. Does the same thing he does to everyone that walks by. He says, give me money. And it says in the text that Peter looked at him. So you can imagine, like, Peter's walking in. Guy says, give me money. And Peter's like, <laughs> looks at him. And it says that the, the, guy, the guy gave him his attention, expecting to get something from him. And he was right. But Peter looks at him. He says, silver and gold I do not have. But what I have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. He takes him by the hand. He helps him to his feet. And then Peter and John, together with this man who had been bedridden, who had been lying on the ground begging for 30 years, they walk into the temple courts together. You can imagine this man with the newfound use of his legs is jumping and leaping and running and praising God. And he was a man well known. He'd been sitting there for years. Everyone that walked in the temple courts knew him. And suddenly they see him and he's walking. And so a crowd gathers around, around Peter, amazed at what has happened. And Peter begins to preach. And he preaches the name of Jesus. And the Spirit moves. And men are moved in their heart. And they give their lives to Jesus. It's a ruckus. <laughs> it's chaos. Because the Spirit is moving. And of course, anytime there's chaos, the forces of order react. And so the temple guards and the, the authorities in the temple are concerned. They come up and they see what's happening. And they arrest Peter and John and put them in prison. They gather together all the council of the rulers of Jerusalem, often called the Sanhedrin. Like, we need to decide what to do with these men. They're causing chaos in our city by declaring the name of this man, Jesus, whom I thought we killed. (laughs) They bring Peter and John before them, and they say, what, you know, how was this man healed? How did you heal him? Peter and John say, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth that this man has been healed. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And it says in the text, when they saw the the faith of Peter and John, they were astounded because they were ordinary men, unschooled, unlearned. But they had been with Jesus. So they sent him away. They're like, we got to decide what to do with uh, Peter and John. We got to decide what to do. We can't allow this to continue. We can't really like kill these guys right now. We can't put them in prison because the whole city is talking about this miracle that has happened. So they, uh, they decide this is what we're going to do. We're going to threaten them. We're going to tell them, if you guys continue to speak in the name of Jesus, we're going to imprison you. We're going to torture you. We're going to kill you. So Stop. So they invite Peter and John back in, and they tell him this. And Peter and John, it says, it says Peter says this. So they, 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 they respond, you know, Peter kind of speaks on behalf of both of them. And he says, judge for yourselves. He says this to the rulers of the city. Judge for yourselves. Should we obey God, or should we obey you? Easy question to answer, right? Should we obey God or should we obey you? Because we cannot help speaking in the name of Jesus Christ. We are under orders for the one who made the universe to do this. Powerful demonstration of faith. Not in the face. <laughs> remember remember how, he, how he fails in our story today? How his faith fails? It's not in the face of the combined might of the entire city of Jerusalem, right? It's because a little servant girl talks to him. Yet here, probably about maybe three months later, 
Three months later, the entire weight of the city of Jerusalem commands me to do something. And he says, no, out of faith in Jesus. So Peter has demonstrated faith before this, even great faith. Peter will demonstrate faith after this. So let's talk about the failure of Peter's faith in this story. Why does Peter fail? We have to see Peter. Peter fails on multiple levels here. You know, he, he's disloyal to his friend. He uh, breaks a command that God has given him. Right? God has said, "You know, if don't disown me before men." Uh, but we should primarily see this as a failure of faith. And in order to understand it, we have to make sure that we have a good conception of what faith is. Now, I think faith has been uh, somewhat degraded as a word in our culture and our, our modern understanding of what, what faith means. Um, and this isn't necessarily a you know, very recent phenomenon. It's been going on for years. But uh, if you look at like the dominant conception of what faith is, and, and because we live in this world and we watch its pop culture and we consume its media, we should assume that we also are affected by the view of faith that is presented to us. So what is that view? Well, has anyone ever seen uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? Yeah? If you haven't seen it, it's on Netflix. Great movie, great film. One of the best out there. Uh, so in this film, Indiana Jones, portrayed by... Harrison Ford, is uh, trying to get the Holy Grail, you know, the mythical cup that uh, Jesus drank out of, which was a huge fascination in the Middle Ages. The Holy, he's trying to get the Holy Grail, and it's been hidden, and to get to this Holy Grail, he has to pass a series of tests. And there's, you know, each test has like kind of a different theme in it. And one of the tests is a test of faith. So Indiana Jones has to pass a test of faith. And this is his test of faith. He uh, uh, approaches like a cliff, and there's this massive chasm that goes way down. And on the other side of the chasm is the door that he needs to go through. It's too far to jump. So this is the test of his faith. So how does he demonstrate faith? It goes like this. He goes, lifts up his foot. <laughs> I don't want to fall off the edge here. He lifts up his foot and he just steps out. And lo and behold... I never really understood this part of the movie, to be honest. But apparently, there was like painted, painted the same colors as the chasm, a bridge that he just couldn't see. So there was a bridge on the ground. He just couldn't see it. And it, it, was, it was painted the same colors as the chasm. I don't know how you'd miss it, but he, apparently he missed it. Okay, so he's just like, I'm just going to step out. This is my faith. Something's going to happen. Boom. Oh, something happened. His faith was proven true. Okay, I don't know what that is. That... That kind of irrational hope that if I just do something, something's going to happen. And it's an irrationality. I need to close off my mind from all of the, the rational reasons why I shouldn't do this. And I just need to believe. Does that, that, that conception of faith, that, that rings bells, right, with what we see in our culture. Now, I don't know what that is. It's some sort of like Gnostic, pagan, irrationalism, like you know, blind faith in like supernatural powers that work in the world or something like that. Who knows what that is? Whatever it is, it is not faith as portrayed in the Bible. Faith is not some blind leap made irrationally for no real purpose. Faith in the scriptures, faith in the scriptures 
is always, always rational. It's always based on some revelation that God has made to his people. You should understand this about faith. Faith asks us to respond to revelation that has been made known to us. Something has been revealed to us that is beyond us and above us. And we act on the basis of that revelation. Specifically, three things are revealed to us. First of all, the love of God is made known. In order for us to act acceptably in the matter of faith, we first have to be persuaded that God loves us. If we are not uh, uh, sure of that, then none of the actions of faith can be undertaken. So first of all, we have to know that there is an eternal God who loves us, who accepts us. The second thing we have to know is that God is powerful. That God is able to accompany his love with works of power. And those works of power have to be stronger than any, any human or worldly power that we know of. So unless it's revealed to us that God loves us and that God has power to accompany his love, we cannot have faith. The third thing that we need for faith is we need the revelation of an instruction or a command. God has to to tell us to do something. And if we know that God has power and we know that God has love, even if from a purely human perspective... The the action looks irrational. It will be rational because it is based on a power that is supreme. Okay? So if Harrison Ford, if like God had appeared to him and said, take that step. I'm God. I love you. That's real faith. All right? (laughs) Well, that did not happen as far as I know to Indiana Jones. Maybe it happened like off screen. Uh, So think about this example in the case of Peter uh, when he appears before the Sanhedrin. Okay? What, what are the rational considerations? He knows that God has demonstrated his love in sending in the incarnate son of God, a savior who has died. And that that death was a propitiation for sins so that man may be reconciled to God. It is the greatest demonstration of love that has ever existed or that will ever exist. There is no greater demonstration of God's love to mankind than the appearance of Jesus Christ. And the actions that he undertook on earth and that were done to him. Peter knows that he's seen that. In fact, that's what he's proclaiming. Second, Peter has observed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and in the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, which has empowered the church, he's witnessed the great, unconquerable power of God. And then third, on that mountain, before Jesus ascended up into heaven, Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations. Be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. A command is upon God's church. First on the apostles and then on those whom the apostles called the faith. To take the name of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. Accompanied by his power and assured of his love. And therefore, when these men, with their human power, their ability to torture and kill his body when they try to contradict God. The choice is easy. Should we obey you or should we obey God? 
We can do nothing but obey God. Such is the nature of faith. Now, when we enter into this particular story, what do we see? What connections should we be making? Because this is not a story of faith's victory, but of faith's failure. Now, John does something unusual in this account of, Jesus, of Peter's denial. All the other, this, is, this appears in all four Gospels. In all the other ones, it's told as one unitary story. But John inserts into the middle of it this picture of Jesus shining forth as the light of the world. And I think there's a deliberate contrast being made between the, the faintly glowing embers of the fire around which Peter gathers and the bright light of Christ in his declaration of himself. In one of, the, um, one of my favorite uh, messianic prophecies, these are uh, prophecies from the Old Testament that talk about the Christ or the Messiah. Isaiah 42, 1 through 3. Listen to the words of this prophecy and see if you can make the connection to what we see in our text today. Here is God speaking. He says, Behold my servant whom I uphold. Referring to the, the servant that he's sent out into the world, which is Jesus Christ. Behold my servant whom I uphold. I have put my spirit upon him. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. Now, this prophecy doesn't mean that Jesus never raised his voice while he was on earth or that he never publicly preached or something like that. What it means is that uh, Jesus did not resist the uh, uh, role that had been given to him by God. The role that he and the Father had agreed upon from eternity, he submitted to it while he was on earth. He did as had been ordained for him to do. Behold my servant whom I behold. I have put my spirit upon him. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench till he has established justice on the earth. This promise is about the character of the interaction of Jesus Christ with the men that he will call to himself. The people that God has given to him. He says, a bruised reed I will not break. A faintly burning wick I will not quench out. Do you see the connection with the faintly burning embers of the fire around around which Peter is gathered? In this story, Peter's faith fails him. And yet we know that his faith does not depart from him. His faith, not even strong enough to hold up against the questioning of a servant girl, is that faintly burning fire, which the Messiah has said he will not quench out. When Jesus came, he came not to save mighty men of faith. He did not come to save people who had inherent in them the strength to do great deeds for him. He came for the bruised reeds. He came for the faintly burning wicks that he would not quench out, that he would not allow to break. The lesson from Peter's faith here is not 
look, guys, Peter's faith failed. So don't let your faith fail. Okay? The end. <laughs> That's not the lesson today. Why is that not the lesson today? Because it is not within us, in our power, to either create or maintain faith. There's not some secret power of the soul that some men have and some don't that leads them into faith. The failure of our faith is not dependent on some strength and inner strength of our character or some uh, you know, effort of our will. For if it were, wouldn't we see that in Peter whose faith was dis- demonstrated so purely, so impressively in the face of, the, like, of death. No, the lesson here is that it is God, the great mercy that he has in Jesus Christ because of the forgiveness that is found in the death of Jesus Christ applied to us by the Holy Spirit following his resurrection. That power, the power of our faith, is a gift. It is donated unto us and it is maintained in us by the sovereign hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, therefore, yes, seek to strengthen your faith. God has put into our lives means by which we can strengthen our faith. God has given us in the community of believers, a means through which we can mutually strengthen each other. Paul says this in Romans 1. He says, I, I long to come to you so that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. So yes, our faith is strengthened as we encounter God in his word. As we hear him, as we pray and experience and spend time to him, our faith is strengthened. So yes, strengthen your faith. Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Because, as Paul says in 2 Timothy, he says, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer. There will come a time. Maybe you're in the midst of it now. If not, it will come soon. It will come one day in which our faith will be tested by external circumstances. No Christian escapes that. Brothers, sisters, listen to me. You will be tested in your faith. So yes, strengthen your faith by the means God has given us to do so. So that when the day of tempting comes, we may stand firm. But at the bottom of this message is not a humanistic exhortation to become better. To do something to yourself that you have the power to do. Because faith is a gift from God. He maintains this in it. When it is weak, he will strengthen it. This is the message of Peter. This is the message of this passage. Grow in faith in the knowledge that it is only God's power that can produce it in you. Amen. <clears throat> Father, 
Lord, we come before you humbled by this message. Lord, I know that um, all of us like to think well of ourselves. We like to imagine that we have greater strength than we do. But Lord, we know, thanks to your word that you revealed to us, that it is you alone that maintain us in the faith that we have. So Lord, I pray that our church, that Prism Church here, Lord, this would be a place where we mutually encourage each other's faith in total and complete dependence on the power of your Holy Spirit to produce us in it, Lord. Lord, we want to walk with you. We want to believe in you. We want to experience the joy of accompanying you out onto the waters, as Peter once did. But Lord, unless you build the house, they labor in vain who make it. God, you alone, by the revelation of your love and your power, are able to strengthen the faith that is in us. May this church be a place where your love is seen, where your power is experienced. That we may be changed. That we may be prepared for the day. The day when the trial of our faith will come, Lord. God, I pray, I, I know that In this congregation, there are some that are in the midst of that. And Lord, would they be strengthened? Oh Lord, a bruised reed you will not break. Would you tenderly care for those that are entering into the trial of their faith? And Lord, may we be strength for one another in those trials. God, because we want this church to be a place where your name is proclaimed to the nations. Where the salvation that is inherent in your cross is displayed for all to see that men may believe, that may see your love and believe it, be changed by it. God, no one here can do that. Only you. A work only accomplished by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord. Let it be so in our midst. In your name we pray. In your name we pray, amen.